0: Walking with the fathers of the church. And I really want to just highlight just initial steps to begin reading uh, uh the fathers. I don't want to call them patristic fathers. Don't ever say that. Patristics is the Latin term for fathers. So essentially you're saying father-fathers, uh, but say either the fathers of the church, the church fathers, or patristics. We could add to this matristics, would which would be. The mothers of the church, Perpetua, Blandina,
1: Monica, um, and others. So as we step into the life of the church, I just want to kind of
0: put down some big pillars for us to begin walking through this. Really, I want to raise a question. Is there even any value in the fathers at all? Is there any value? in this at all. And I just want to have like just four just big broad concerns. So let's, let's walk through the, the, the concept of authority, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard this uh, uh, as well as I'm sure you may even say this, the fathers are not scripture. So why should I be concerned about men's or humanity's words? Yeah, that's, that's actually a good objection doesn't mean we shouldn't not listen because i would probably come back to you and say name name to me the last devotional book that you read on the scriptures (laughs) and i would say you are reading human words right so uh, what what this is is that what we want to do in this process is not equate the fathers in scripture they're not the same they're not the same and so this concept of authority yeah go ahead go ahead and buy that but also i am i'm sure that you've read a theology book in the past year i'm sure you've read a devotional book in the past year uh and therefore i want to also suggest you're reading human words at that point well at at one level ephesians 4 comes in ephesians 4 comes in what are the gifts that god has given to the church evangelists right prophets then we get into two other categories teachers and pastors it's the gift given to the church so in other words we need humans to help explicate the clarity of scripture second philosophy the fathers are steeped in platonic philosophy so therefore they're clouded in their judgments of scripture go to just file this away As we start reading the fathers, as we start reading their works, ask yourself this, how steeped in platonic philosophy they actually are. I don't want to suggest that they aren't, but I don't think it's to the extent that critics
1: want to say. Third, theological confessions. Um, When people find out that I'm a Baptist,
0: let me back up. When people find out that I'm a Protestant, that I read the fathers sympathetically. I read the fathers every day. I'll share a little bit about what I'm working on right now uh, in terms of my academic work. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. When I first moved out here, I was like, I, I was, I had so many questions because I, I was in a it was, an, it was an anomaly. The fathers reflect Roman Catholicism and or Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm a Protestant. So shouldn't I be more interested in the Reformation? Well, maybe. I I don't want to diminish that us as Protestants have a good heritage in the the Reformation. That is true. That is very true. Um, uh, We could probably even tighten this up a little bit. If you read the Fathers, will you become Eastern Orthodox? Will you become Eastern uh, Roman Catholic? No, no. If you do, then there's a problem of authority. There's a problem of theological confusion, and I think there's epistemological changes that are being uh, undertaken at that moment. Um, Why do we perceive the church to begin at 1500
1: when it did begin in the first century?
0: So there will be things that we glean helpfully from the fathers, there will also be things that will be like, nope, I don't think I can buy that. And we need to learn how to read critically and discerningly when we step into this theological vision. Fourth, temporal concern. The fathers do not reflect the concerns or interests of the 21st century. That's exactly right. Don't force them to become a 21st century theologian. But in the same way, How many of you have ever read Jonathan Edwards? I would say that doesn't reflect our era, so why would you even bother? I'm sure that many of you uh, uh, in our history classes here have maybe read Luther, Zwingli, um, Calvin. Again, the same uh, critique happens. They don't reflect us in our current era. Um, So I don't want to produce this notion that novel is more wise, novel is better. Just had a conversation last night with our ministry interns at our church, um, and some more clarity was brought about even this morning. What's, What's the wise life? What is the wise life? Time plus experience plus knowledge plus mentorship. That's the wise life. Let us not be confused that novel is better. Let us not become confused that To be brand new means it's the new best thing. No. Often what is better is what's old. Often what's better is what's old. And it's really hard to teach the church that concept. It's really hard. Uh, But it's, uh, it's our responsibility to be anchored, to be convictional, to do things slowly when we step into the life of the church, and to really help craft a new vision of what it means to live a wise life. Wisdom, sort of corresponding both to time and longevity, like the concept of endurance. One of the things I really enjoy about Eugene Peterson, there's a number of things I don't enjoy. The one thing I really do is I love the principle uh, that he named. It's the title of one of his books. What did he call Pastoral Ministry? Obedience in a Single Direction, right? Obedience in a Long
1: Single Direction. That's good. That is good. Uh, Do we have a question? I'm so sorry to say that again. Yes. Oh, yes. i would like to see them is that is this okay is that a little bit better okay
0: okay what value i want to i want to offer five ways that there is clear value for the fathers uh there's going to be a couple items that we talk about that i want to just kind of tip my hand reveal and say i unequivocally hold this uh there's going to be other times where i'm going to say nope we gotta we gotta part ways there and i want to try to navigate where where and how we can do that. So what value might there be in the Fathers? First and foremost, it is in the era of the Fathers that they forge Trinitarian grammar and Trinitarian theology. If we were to sort of summarize what is beneficial of each era, like if we were to look back at the Reformation, what is one of the chief markers? We would probably say soteriology. That was a very clear marker of the Reformed era that was valuable. A clear marker of the patristic era is Trinitarianism. I wonder, I I just want to kind of plant this uh, out here in the classroom. I wonder what the marker for our 21st century era. I have a hunch uh, it'll be anthropology. The community at large and the church at large is struggling to be Clear to find what does it mean to be human. So in the in the air of the fathers, it's trinitarian faith, trinitarian theology. Second, there's a vision of pastor theologians that I really want to recover. I really want to recover this notion of the pastor theologian. Um, uh, I want to sort of undo a very stark dichotomy. Right, there are some professors. That are so gifted in the classroom, but you put them in a pulpit and just be like, man, your gifts are somewhere else. <laughs> and and to, But to be aware of that, like it's really good to voice that, to be mindful of that. One is not greater than the other. So don't, don't hear there's like this unneeded dichotomy, right? But God has gifted, God has gifted teachers and pastors. All pastors should teach, not all teachers should pastor. But I think there's, there's a really healthy vision of the pastor theologian. A lot of the, of the theological works that we'll read, they're homilies. They're situated in discipleship relationships. Situated in discipleship relationships. One of the things that it really helped me in my scholarship, it's really tempting with social media to get involved. Really tempting to be known well beyond your local circle. It's really tempting to be known, uh, sort of more social media, maybe more nationally, more globally. Um, A book that we read last night with our interns, uh, The Pastoral Rule by Gregory the Great. That book is, you know, good sized book. It was written from one pastor to another younger pastor. A person in the era will spend time writing books for one person. I think we gotta change how we think about productivity. We do things well in ministry for the sake of a single person. Are you willing to do that? Like that is a you you want to guard sort of your heart. I'm trying to chase notoriety. Right? Guard in your heart. No one will ever know some of the conversations that you have in your local. Church. People will never know. A lot of the counseling that I do uh, as a pastor, it does not need to be broadcast globally. It does not need to be uh, broadcast for other people to see or to hear. And frankly, one person's life has changed through your two hours of spending. Imagine living a life where your whole year of writing a 400-page book is simply, simply for one person, your disciple. Would you do that? One thing that I've learned from the fathers, they have just shattered my academic vision in that. Second, or third, uh, true ecumenicism and creedal formulation. I'm going to be very clear here for Catholic Christianity, not Roman Catholic. There is a sense that we need to recover a little bit of Catholicity. Right? What do I mean by that? Can you confess and recite the Apostles' Creed? If the answer is yes, then you already have a little bit of Catholicity. Multiple uh, uh, iterations of the Christian church can confess that. To not be able to confess
1: Nicaea was tantamount to not being Christian. Fourth, Christian theology occurs in the church and for the church. I've kind of already hinted at that with number
0: two. A lot of this theology that we're going to read with the fathers are church concerns. They're church-oriented concerns. They're not big-picture social media debates. They're anchored. They're anchored in real-life questions from real-life people that the bishop is pastoring. So what do they do? They write a 400-page treatise to answer one question for one person. It's incredible. So when we dive into Nicene theology, it's not this academic enterprise. It guarded and governed ministry in the local church. Number five, and this one was really helpful for me. Intellectual fervor and spirituality are not at odds. I'll just confess, this is sort of my sins that I. There were seasons where I thought to be intellectually intelligent in biblical studies meant that I could not let my spirituality be affected. Oh man, that is anything but. They demonstrate this. They demonstrate this so well. It's pastors and bishops who are writing intellectually deep
1: resources and as they're reflecting on the complexity of a spiritual life. Why read the Fathers? Welcome to the feast. Welcome
0: to the feast. I want to read this quote. Uh, It's by Christopher Hall. Uh, Once more, my advice for the pages to come, this is Learning Theology with the Fathers. My advice for the pages to come, read slowly, listen carefully, and surround the entire process with prayer. If you find yourself drawn to meditation or worship as you read, accept this gift willingly and thankfully. Do not become discouraged or frustrated or disillusioned. If the immediate relevance of the Father's reflections, insights, and arguments fails to appear, oh, that we could cover that in right? Sometimes the best ideas are not immediately relevant. Patristic theology is occasionally complex, understandably so, because the God who reveals himself to us in the scripture, worship, prayer, the sacraments is complex. Complexity, however, is different from confusion, and the reader who slowly chews on Athanasius' understanding of the nation or Augustine's thoughts on the Christian's hope for the future will discover flavors and textures and nourishment that may well last a life.
1: Welcome to feast. Another item of why
0: we, sh- we ought to read the Fathers, I think it anchors us into uh, first principles. What's a first principle? Really important. If the first principle is absent, the whole system breaks down. In patristic theology, first principle always and without a doubt, it's Trinitarian theology. The doctrine of God is a theological first principle. Ecclesiology is not a first principle. Why? Because it's God who—it's God the Father, according to Ephesians 1, who elects, it's the Son who redeems, it's the Spirit who seals, and it's the triune God who then forms the church. Without God, there is no church. Therefore, ecclesiology is a second principle. As we learn theology from the fathers, it's going to help quickly orient us in theological first principles. Uh, there is a helpful image given uh, many years ago, called, uh, it's sort of broadly entitled the Theological Triage. I don't know if anyone is familiar with this. Let's say mul- many of us in here get to a car wreck. Aaron has a head intusion. A- uh, uh, Andrew sort of breaks an arm and I sort of get a scratch. When we go to the hospital, who are they treating first? The head, the, the, the injury to the head, why? Because his arm can wait, my scratch can wait. Theology is very similar to this. Let's just get it out on the table. All theology is important and is valuable, but not all theology is equally weighted. If I get the doctrine of God wrong, I get Christianity wrong. If I get the doctrine of eschatology wrong, you'll look at me and just say, yep, we're all misinformed sometimes. Right, so all doctrine is very vital for the health of the church, but not all doctrine is equally weighted. One thing that the fathers show us, when you're on the verge
1: of martyrdom, what are you going to confess I believe
0: on millennial
1: eschatology, and I disavow pre No, that's not what you're going to talk about. You will say, I believe in the one God and Father and Lord and Holy Spirit of all, and you'll be killed. The Father's help orient us to a theological perspective. We can keep,
0: keep rolling here. I, I want to come down here to the creedal and wise theological guardrails. This is really important. The fathers are not scripture. They are not scripture. Let's get that out on the table really clearly, early, and we'll say it often. They are senior conversation partners about scripture and its meaning. We listen to them respectfully, but we are not afraid to disagree. We have to say that. John Jewell, Bishop of Salisbury in the, during the Reformation. But what say you of the fathers? Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome, Cyprian. You probably call him Cyprian. Cyprian, it's a hard sea. What shall we think of them? Or what account may we make of them? They be interpreters of the word of God. They were learned men learned and learned father. The instruments of mercy and of God. Vessels full of grace. We despise them not. We read them. We reverence them. We give thanks unto God for them. They were witnesses unto the truth. They were worthy pillars, ornaments in the church of God. Yet, may they not be compared with the word of God.
1: Trust is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in Augustine. Solo Scriptura. Sola Scriptura has developed
0: to mean something else in our modern era than it did in the Reformation era. I think. I think. So keep in mind, this is sort of a slow sweep of the hand, right? So obviously when there's generalizations, it doesn't help. But sometimes Sola Scriptura has been redefined as nuda scriptura or solo scriptura, scripture only. And it meant like, we can't go to any outside voices. No, Calvin, Uh, there are multiple books uh, on the reception of the fathers in John Calvin. Melanchthon, there was a new uh, recent book, maybe about four or five years ago with Van de Hoken uh, on Melanchthon's reception of the Fathers, a proper understanding of sola scriptura assumes the use and the reception of the Fathers, but it's rightly appropriated. Scripture and the Fathers are not equal. Scripture with the Fathers subordinated was a helpful understanding of what sola scriptura uh, looked like. Let's keep going, and then I'll I'll, I'll stop for some questions. How to read the fathers. How to read the fathers. Let me sort of kind of paint big picture on how to step towards them, how to read them. I have my eye both on scholarship and I have my eye both on the ministry uh, vocation. Read primary sources. Get to the primary source sooner and not solely reflections about the fathers. Let me just provide a caveat. That would be like standing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, preaching the scriptures always from a commentary. You would never do that. So when we get to the fathers, read primary sources, jump into primary sources and not solely reflections about fathers. I want to provide us three categories. When I teach church history, one, I kind of walk through these three broad categories to help kind of discern, if you will, the kinds of questions to ask when we learn about the, the father. Reflect both on, first, the social history surrounding the father. What was the Roman world like in 250 AD? What was Africa like, North Africa, Carthage, like at the end of the fourth century when Augustine's born, right? That's social history. Number two, what's the history of the church leading up to the father, that particular father? So if we're in the fifth century, that means we have 400, 500 years preceding us on the movements of the church. Can you talk about that? Third, Can you look at the literary and theological development of a father? Okay,
1: ready for this? um, Pre-exile, Hilary of Poitiers is a subordination. Pre-exile.
0: During exile, he discovers the Creed of Nicaea. Post-exile, Hillary then becomes an ardent defender of pro-Nicene theology in the Latin tradition. So we have to know that. So like if you're reading a, a, a Trinitarian book from Hilary of Poitiers, he's like, he is an absolute subordinationist. Yeah, he is. Pre exile. He changes his position. They're humans. How many of us over the past five years have changed something theologically? So then. Right, so that, and then fourth, read individual books by fathers. See, read the fathers on their terms and in their settings. Do not make a father answer a question that reflects your theological quandaries. Define and describe their questions, their use of scripture, their philosophical assumptions. I first off, before we retrieve the fathers, I want you to be good historians of the fathers. I am part of, I I would qualify myself as part of the ressourcement movement of the fathers. It was a French movement that has then spilled over into America known as retrieval. I would be a part of that. I want us to recover the voices of the fathers for good theology. Here's my, as an insider, here's my absolute critique of retrieval theology. A good majority of them are poor historians. I want you to be a good historian first before you do a retrieval process. D, especially if you have limited time and limited energy, listen to patristic experts on which work to read and why as it relates to your interests. Otherwise, you might be lost on which sources to consider. I had a friend jump in to the first time into the Fathers, and he read the whole first book of Irenaeus' adversus heresis against heresies. Book one is boring. It's this list of heresies for book one and two. It's not until book three that you start getting to constructive theology. He should have began in book three. So what happened? He read book one and just thought, I don't want to do this at all. And it ended up postponing his journey in the Father's. So just ask like ask no experts on these topics no experts on these topics for those who are advanced i'm going to be very i'm going to push pressure i'm going to put pressure on you if you have aspirations for thm and or phd studies in the fathers reflect on primary sources in original language here's what i mean i if i oversee a student in the thm or the phd i will Continue to, to hit this mantra. I want you to know Koine and some classical Greek. I need you to know Latin. I need you to know some Coptic and Syriac as ancient languages. At the end of your PhD, I need you to have some German, French, and Italian research. Your question should be, do you do that? Yes. I have to. Patristic theology
1: is a global conversation. It is not an American-English-only mm-hmm. no. mm-hmm. Yep. Know, know your professors
0: that know how to use the languages and ask them, work through them to learn German. They're, I forget her name. It's a, it's a book. It's a red book It's entitled Read German Quickly. It's a really helpful, quick read on German. Once you get to the THM PhD level, when you're sharing research, it's it's assumed that you're reading it. You don't need to read German in the same way that you read Greek, right? I I can't pick up a German book and just go, (sniffs) you better believe I can pick up the New Testament and just go. (sniffs) So uh, every language is going to be different. Second, uh, I mainly work in Alexandrian Christian literature which means my Greek is probably a little bit sharper than Latin. But I need to know Latin because there are Latinists that will develop in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. Um, German's offered here, correct? German, French, is seen. same. Might, it probably might be small. It's not. Uh, and then another advancement. Read Late Antique Philosophy. Uh, to know the philosophical questions being asked. So, like for example, my research right now is in Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril of Alexandria. So I need to know about Plotinus. Plotinus is one of his primary philosophical interlocutors. How do I retrieve the fathers? How do I use the fathers in current theological discourse? This is often a reoccurring question that I have with students and those that figure out when I start reading the Fathers, they're like, "What? how, how can I use it for questions that I'm a- asking? Okay, here we go. Do not confuse obedience to the gospel and obedience to the scriptures to obedience to a human theologian. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep hitting that mantra. As a theologian in the Fathers, as a historian in the Fathers, as someone who teaches Early Christianity, my allegiance is first and foremost to God, the triune, eternal God, and his scriptures by
1: which he has revealed himself, not to Origen's voice. Here's one thing. It's it's an image to try to show you
0: how people speak about the fathers when they're ill-informed. How many of you have heard arguments say, but the fathers say this, the fathers say that? Okay, the patristic era is roughly 100 to 650 AD. 100 to 650 AD. Do not confuse one voice of the father to speak for the whole era. This would be like saying, If John Calvin addresses a topic, is he supposedly representative of the entire theological vision from 1500 to 2150? No. Of course we don't say that. But when we say, origin says and then kind of jettison into the father say this, that's what you're doing. right? That's what these people are doing. Right, So don't confuse one for the entire. You want to work towards ecumenicism. Is there more than one father? Is there more than one time period? And is there more than one geograph- geographical re- uh, region? At that point, you can be more willing to
1: say the father said. Last, uh, do not read and retrieve each father or
0: each doctrine in the same way. This is going to be really important. Do not retrieve each doctrine and read each father in the same way. Read and model theological moves of the fathers for certain doctrines. Read and listen to the voices of the fathers for certain doctrines. Read and appreciate the voices of your heritage on certain doctrines. You need wisdom to discern. In other words... Listen deeply and nearly unequivocally. This is me revealing my name.
1: <clears throat>
0: On pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, how many of you want to say Chalcedon? Chalcedon. Chalcedon Christology. Read and listen closely on soteriology and visions of soteriology. In other words, we won't follow their soteriological. You can probably read and appreciate some aspects of it, but probably not wholesale. Read and appreciate Origen's preexistent vision of the souls. Please do not leave here saying, I, because Origen said souls exist before they were created. No! It almost sounds Mormon. Uh, if anyone is familiar with Origen and his legacy, there are Five Origenian heresies over the over the course of the early Christian. In other words, uh, 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 after Origen dies, there's a small convening of theologians that condemn him. He's condemned five other times in a span of about 600 years. I want to try to situate them because I am in favor and sort of a positive reader of Origen. I want to try to appropriate him. Uh, when we get there, but also realize and speak real honestly, he's odd. He's odd at times. He reads the scriptures oddly. He holds to an odd theological position, this being one of them, the preexistent of the souls. Let me just really reflect real broadly on my own journey. And this is simply just to try to describe kind of the big journey that I've had in them. I am very committed as a Protestant, I am very committed as an evangelical. I am very uh, uh, committed as a Baptist. Can I tell you? All three of those mean different things. When I say I'm a Protestant, I am generally uh, uh, reformed in soteriology, evangelical. I love the gospel and missiology. As a Baptist, I am a firm adherent to credo-baptism. So that means I get to read the Fathers and be a classical Trinitarianist, right? So these three items, they mean something, but they're not threatened by my reading of the Fathers. I've, I've, I've guided and walked with too many people that have just existential crises when they read the Fathers for the first time, and they jettison them. No, I'm here to tell you, there's no need to. There's no need to. My first real encounter with the fathers i was uh, <clears throat> i'll share this a l- little bit because it's been asked of me why do i teach church history here but also I, t- I teach greek um yeah i have two degrees in new testament and in patristics as a new testament student i first came across uh gospel criticisms and authorship concerns in the voices of the fathers i had a great new testament professor that made me read primary sources on authorship traditions. So for example, Papias. Papias is considered one of the apostolic fathers uh, that talks about Mark and Peter. Uh, sorry, that talks about Peter being the vo- the voice origin of the Gospel of Mark. I don't know if anyone is familiar with this, maybe taking New Testament one. So I, that that just like opened my eyes. I thought, oh my word, this is this is opening up a world to me. And it was Papias that did that. Happiest is what sort of broke that open. Uh, it's really important to find mentors in the fathers. Not everyone's an expert, right? But there's a funny meme that goes along uh, that comes on. So it has a little bit of snark and sarcasm. So let me just vocalize. Uh, I enjoy sarcasm when it's appropriately applied. This is a kind of a humorous one because I, I experience it uh, quite often right? Like when medical, when people start giving medical advice, like the doctors will have on their desk don't confuse your Google search for my, my, my medical experiences, right? So make sure you actually sit down with someone who is an expert, right? Don't, don't be led off by someone who has read Augustine once and then therefore they're the expert on Augustine. No, 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 no. Be very tame on what voices you listen to. Here are my mentors, Michael Haken and Lewis Ayer. My ear is wide open to these two mentors. Uh, beyond them, Lewis Ayers was a student of Rowan Williams. I don't know if that is familiar for anyone. He is a, a premier uh, uh, patristic scholar. Michael Haken <clears throat> goes back to John Egan, uh, and then Charles Uh all, These like there's a heritage. Um, and uh, it's just really important for you to find mentors in, uh, in the Father's, because they're able to guide you. But I don't mean for this to be a hard flex. I don't mean for that, but it's, I think it's really important to, just to demonstrate pedigree at, at some point. So my THM and PhD is in first, uh, first century uh, Christianity, extends a little bit up into the third century. So I've, I've done a thesis on uh, New Testament, Uh, Gospel literature. Um, My um, uh, my PhD thesis was on Didache, uh, and working in Didache have a commentary on Didache. Uh, Both of those were done at Southern Southern Seminary. Uh, Also working on a second PhD, almost done with it, Um, in fifth century Trinitarian and hermeneutic concerns, hermeneutical concerns. In Trinitarian literature, uh, in the fifth century, and so both of those were done with Michael um, Michael at the Patristic level, first and second century, Lewis uh, there in the fifth century. Uh, and there's a number of publications, right? I'm going to have you read a couple of my articles on spirituality, a couple on scriptural exegesis, a couple on um, what other one did I have you read? That's okay. It's beside the point. But it's just to demonstrate, like, there is someone who's committed evangelical, committed Protestant, committed Baptist. I, I live in this world, and I'm not tempted to jettison this. So I, I'm, I'm wanting to try to anchor you. If, if you, as a, uh, at a Baptist institution, reading the Fathers, it doesn't have to threaten your theological heritage, your theological... Obviously, there's going to be questions that come up and questions that, that peak their head. Here are ways that the fathers have have really helped me. Historical critical reflection. There was a time in my spiritual heritage where inerrancy and and resurrection were about to be jettisoned. Um, This was a number of years ago, number of years ago, but I thought inerrancy is not true. Resurrection did not happen. There were a number of reasons that led to to that that item. Uh, Here's what helped recover that. I discovered, for the first time, the Creed of Nicaea. And I thought, this is what sustains Christian identity. This is what sustains Christian identity, derived from the scriptures, affirming then the resurrection of the Son. The second thing, obviously it's going to be attached to that, is just spiritual reflection. There was a season where I thought, my spiritual dryness is so high, and it's rooted in my love of biblical studies, right? I'm reading lexicons. I'm reading philology, philology stuff, uh, doing items within the Greek language. And I thought, my soul is so dry. Why is that? And obviously, there's other, you can, you can probably hear a storyline, right, being developed. And part of that was, how can I read um, modern literature and be an academic but not have spiritual devotion, right? It was a really hard dichotomy for me. And then I picked up Augustine. I picked up Origen for the first time, and I thought, this is intellectually heavy, and both of them are
1: pastors at some point. origen not for a whole long time, but he did tons of mentoring. And so here
0: was my, here was my wrestling. Intellectual fervor and spiritual dichotomy doesn't need to exist. You can be the smartest person in the room and be spiritually dry. The fathers teach us that you can be intellectually deep and have rich spirituality. And then the last one, uh, I've sort of already reflected a little bit on this, Trinitarian deficiency of modern theology. Um, this is where I feel like the fathers could help us. The fathers could help modern theological discourse on Trinitarian uh Trinitarian doctrine. Um and, and that will probably continue to peek its head. What do they teach me? I I, I I learn from them each day. Yes, I read scripture. I also uh, part of my part of my studies right now I'm I'm working on a couple projects. Um <clears throat> one on Cyril of Alexandria and his doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that's uh that'll probably come out in a couple of years. Um, It just takes a long time to dig up and write something good and meaningful. It takes a while to do that. And so what do they teach me? They've sharpened my Trinitarian vocabulary. They've sharpened my Trinitarian vision. Um, So that, that would be kind of one, just kind of big item right there. Any
1: questions about this in general? Any questions about this in general? Any questions? That's yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah,
0: like how did I, how did I start navigating that? Yep, so I, I started pastoring during my, my MDiv, uh, my time during my MDiv. Uh, the, the seminary that I chose, I just didn't know theologically left from right. And I thought, I'm pastoring a church right now. I just need a local seminary. That was sort of, that was sort of what governed. Uh, what I chose it was in the second year uh, of my time at the seminary that I went to, there were some good things there there were some very poor things at the seminary that I went to. The really good thing was uh, they were so heavy on the languages. My language abilities as a master student was through the group and it, was, it really was in part due to my the, the school and the education and the professors that, that, I, that I was working with. the why why a i started noticing i started noticing in my heart a little bit of um a uh, lack of fulfillment and pastoring it was really hard for me just to do that only where i had friends and colleagues that were like man i live i eat i breathe this stuff all the time and i started noticing in my greek classes that the questions that i was asking were flying over this my uh, my peer the, the stu- other students in the class and i thought why am I asking questions that no other students are asking? Or when I hear questions from other students, I thought, that's really simple. Why? Because it's on this page in this footnote. Like that's what I was doing at the time. And so it helped turn a, a couple things for me. I thought, okay, academics might be in my future. And I don't know if I can pastor own them. So this is why, this is why they've really helped me rediscover the pastor-theologian model. I get to pastor and I get to do academics and they're not two different fields. That was really, that helped recover that, uh, idea for me. And then beyond that, it was, uh, just confirmation from teachers and other, other pastor mentors that I was with.
1: And then, uh, like what made you want to do a second page?
0: Uh, I want, I want to be proficient in my field. First century is very different than fifth century. It went right. Coming back to uh, if a father says and you speak for this whole generation, it's like us saying John Calvin speaks for everything, even 150 years from now. Right. That's not true. Right. So in other words, the patristic field is so, so big. That's why I did first and second century and then jump to the end of pro nicene theology of the fifth century. Those are really kind of the, the hubs. What is the start and origins that create Christianity? what is the most mature kind of section in in the fathers. It would be like like having your specialty both as, um, uh, uh, I did a, you do studies in uh, Martin Luther, like let's say you're a Lutheran scholar, um, but then you also jump into Karl Barth. They're two really different, but, they fit within the patristic area, right? If we're, if we're using that 650 years as, a, as an example. So to say that you're a Reformation scholar does not mean you're a modern theologian, right, scholar. right? And so part of this was, uh, the field is so big, so big, and I, I really want to be mentored in Excel. Yeah, that's good. And any other questions? Go for it, Aaron. Well, what do you think is the driving force that's um, causing the Trinitarian yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, a couple of things, shifting of first principles, uh, shifting of first principles, not knowing how to speak about metaphysics, um, what is going to contribute to it, uh, modernism is going to affect it, um, modernism being what is visible, what is physical should come first and primary before spiritual. So at that point social realms become primary where the metaphysical invisible world becomes secondary so at that point the material world is governing how we understand the spiritual world and not vice versa right the spiritual world should govern then what we understand about the material world and so it's a totally different philosophical construct probably in um, other circles it's a it's a tie to certain visions of anthropology
1: that are then driving how to view the doctrine? Yeah, it's a good question. Anybody else? Yeah, go for it. How can we? I guess like what like uh, for yourself as I guess a pastor, but also yeah. as a theologian, like, theology, like yeah. how do you
0: get that? What? How do you use the information that you that you've learned and like what you pass on to us as students to apply to the local church where you're dealing with like? In my congregation, is it's all just junior high, high school kids? <laughs> so I, I don't think these kids will be interested in a conversation about origin no, and they won't. Know, yeah, no, they want yeah. it all. They want it all. Uh, exegesis. Let's talk about exegesis real quick. Uh, if you're in my New Testament class, not New Testament class, my Greek class, I know there's a couple others. Moreno. Uh, here's a funny saying that I'll use uh, uh, at, when I work with our ministry interns. If they preach, I want them, no matter what, if they know the language, to use the language in private. Every sermon that I develop, it's from the biblical languages, Greek. I will retranslate the Greek text so I can get a feel of what's happening. I'll work through syntactical questions. Uh, This might be a little bit inappropriate here. Using Greek should be like wearing underwear. Everyone knows you're wearing them, but no one should see them. When you step into the pulpit, I don't want to know your Greek. Why? Because that won't sustain someone in your church on the hospital bed but what it does do is that it informs everything you say. So it's hovering in the background, driving all that you communicate. As we jump into origin, as we jump into Athanasius, as we jump into reading and reflecting on the Nicene Creed, you may never step into the pulpit and say, Athanasius says this, but here's what I do want. The theological vision of Trinitarianism governing and guiding all that you talk about. So for example, I think it's really important for uh, high school students in junior high, high school, to know the full eternal weight of the son. It's good to know his full divinity. Why? Because if he says who he says he is, then we need to listen to him, right? Those types of arguments. But uh, a student will chime in, but in Matthew 24, it says, the son doesn't know all things. He doesn't know the, the return of the father. You'll be able to say, you're exactly right. Only in his incarnation, why because he's limited by humanity and he has the same nature as the Father, eternal with him. It just should, it should govern how you talk. Good question anybody else? You're Okay, can
1: you going can to the top of that section that you're on right now. <laughs> There's a question I had, but I can't remember. Yep. Can you tell me when to stop I'm right there? Yep. yep, there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs>
0: Okay, anybody else? Okay. We have an hour left of class. Can we work through it? I'm trying to gauge on what to do with a three-hour class. I want to split it up three ways. I might need to just split it up two ways, hour and a half, hour and a half. How are we feeling? Do we need a quick breather for post-lunch? Give me a thumbs up to keep going. Thumbs down, I need a quick break. How are we doing? Let's do it. Two minutes. Two minutes. Jared, you win.
1: <laughs> Let's do two minutes.